Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today with me I have my TCA colleague and good friend, Maureen Ferguson. We have an amazing show lined up for you today. We have two senators. We're going to chat with Senator Roger Wicker, who serves the great state of Mississippi. He gave an impassioned speech on the Senate floor recently about international adoption. But first, we're very excited to have Senator Marsha Blackburn with us. She represents the great state of Tennessee. Senator Blackburn is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who will soon begin the Senate confirmation hearings of President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Senator Blackburn, thank you for taking the time to join us. I am delighted to join you, and thank you so much for the good work you have done in supporting Judge Barrett. We know that she is well qualified. She is experienced. She is highly regarded by her colleagues on both the left and the right, uh, not only as an experienced jurist who is a constitutionalist and has respect for the rule of law, but as a woman of great accomplishment and success and strength of character, and I have to say, a wonderful mom, mother to seven children, one with special needs, and two that were adopted from Haiti. Well, Senator Blackburn, this is Maureen Ferguson joining Gracie, and I can't tell you how thrilled we are to have you on. Senator Blackburn and I are longtime pals. She and my husband used to sit next to each other when they were both in the House of Representatives. They sat next to each other on the House Commerce Committee. So, Senator Blackburn, over the past few years, we have had a few conversations about Amy Coney Barrett because she is just such a rock star for conservative women. And you, Senator Blackburn, have been such a role model for conservative women. So just on a personal level, what was your reaction when you heard that the president was actually going to nominate her to the Supreme Court? I was absolutely thrilled, thrilled that they chose to nominate her. She has been on their short list if you will. And I think the timing is right for her to move to the court. She will be the first working mom to be on the court, the first mom with school-age children to be on the Supreme Court. And you know, Maureen, one of the things that I think is so necessary as we look at preserving our nation's freedoms is to have diversity of opinion and diversity of viewpoint. And Amy will bring that. And I think that that is very healthy for her to have. She's had a wealth of experience and she will bring that different viewpoint and the court should welcome that and the American people should welcome that. That's right, Senator. And I'm wondering if you could make a prediction for us. How do you think um, the Democrats on the committee are going to react to this woman who is so clearly eminently qualified? She's been teaching law for 20 years. She's been a judge on the Seventh Circuit. And she's as known for her, her heart of gold, really, and her beautiful family as she is for her brilliant intellect. So it seems to me that the Democrats on the committee feel a little bit checkmate 
isolated and don't quite know what to do with her. One of the things that is of concern to me is the fact that they will try to villainize her. We see this happen regularly. And basically the left and the mainstream media will say, well, your opinion really isn't welcomed if you're pro-life, pro-family, pro-religion, pro-business, pro-military. And we know that they will come after her for being a woman of faith. And I have to tell you, Maureen, that one of the concerns on that front is the left seems to be pushing back on the religious liberty issue from a lot of different fronts. But when you see them pushing back on someone because they exercise their faith, because they take their children to church every single week, this should be something that sets off alarm bells for women. They should look very closely at what the left is doing, because here is someone who is devoutly Catholic. They take their children to church. They are rearing them to be individuals of faith. And look at the way they are treated by the media because of that. And it's like with the adoption of the children from Haiti. You have some people saying, well, maybe those adoptions should be investigated. You have a reporter who comes from the left who is saying, oh, if she has children, if she has seven children and a child with special needs, does she really have the capacity to handle a Supreme Court spot? So these are things that we know that they are going to come come forward with. So those that are your listeners, I would encourage them to be in contact with their senators to support this woman. I would encourage them to pray for this family as this is going to be tough. Imagine sitting with your children and hearing and listening to this type conversation. Senator, this is Gracie Christie. You mentioned a little earlier that she brings a diversity, a needed diversity to the Supreme Court, her position as a mother with school-aged children, as you just said, a woman who takes her faith seriously and is educating her children in the faith. I have the feeling that when all these attacks start, that there are so many women and of course men in the United States that are raising their children exactly the same way and they have the same perspectives and the same priorities. They put the children first and they shape their families around the needs of the children and then at the same time they're very successful professionally. Do you think that these uh, attacks on, on a woman like Amy Coney Barrett who really is a paragon when it comes to all these different strengths that she exhibits, do you think that these attacks are going to put off American people? You know, I think it will cause people People to think twice. And as we are right in front of an election and safety and security in your community is one of the top issues with women right now. And then if they see someone who is highly regarded by Democrats and Republicans and is a woman of faith and they have really a more traditional type lifestyle and they are being attacked for that. I think that will cause some people to think twice about who they're voting for and why their vote matters and why it matters who wins elections and why it matters who governs. Uh, Senator Blackburn, I know Judge Barrett has been up on Capitol Hill this week meeting with members of the Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee in particular. I have two questions. First, I'm wondering if you personally have met with her yet this round, and if so, what were your impressions? And 
secondly, we're noticing that many of the Democrats are simply refusing to meet with her, which seems quite disrespectful of this accomplished judge. I had the opportunity to visit briefly with her on Saturday when I was at the White House. I'm going to visit with her later this week, and I'm delighted that so many of my colleagues are having the opportunity to visit with her and to talk with her. So I look forward to that, and I look forward to being a part of these hearings at the Senate Judiciary Committee and look forward to having the opportunity to keep you all informed as we move forward with these hearings. Senator, you pointed out that Barrett is not only a jurist that upholds the Constitution, she also has a tie to Tennessee. Her she's She graduated magna cum laude from Rhodes College. Is this a proud moment for the state of Tennessee? Oh, yes, indeed it is. And some of our friends in Memphis, where Rhodes is located, are incredibly excited about her being nominated and Rhodes having someone who has been there at Rhodes College being on the Supreme Court. It is certainly a proud moment for the state of Tennessee to have Amy Coney Barrett nominated to the Supreme Court. It'll be a proud moment for every state in the nation if she is actually appointed. So thank you so much, Senator Blackburn. I know that you're being called urgently to the Senate floor. It was very kind of you to give us this time from your very, very busy day. So Maureen, one of the things that we wanted to talk to the senator about that we ran out of time is that she wrote a book recently and you got to talk to her about her book. She's excited about it. It sounds like a wonderful book. It's called The Mind of a Conservative Woman Seeking the Best for Family and Country. I'm sure she wrote this book long before Amy Coney Barrett was being considered for the Supreme Court. What a wonderful title for this moment that we find ourselves in. That's right. Senator Blackburn is, in addition to serving the state of Tennessee, she's also a pretty prolific author and she writes a lot about women's issues and conservative women. So this book, it, it seems she was so prescient in writing this book mm-hmm. because now we have this amazing conservative woman in Amy Coney Barrett who has burst upon the national scene to the awe of many of us. So it's a really interesting book and she emphasizes it's sort of like an alternative to Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook's book, Leaning In, but how to sort of lean in in the right way with keeping your family as a priority, your faith and your values and thinking of the next generation and not just your career goals. So Senator Blackburn's previous book was called Life Equity. And I think that was kind of written in response to Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. So anyway, Senator Blackburn really is a great role model for conservative women. And she also takes a lot of time, just like Amy Coney Barrett, to mentor young women. And that's why she's written this book. It's a really interesting uh, position that young women find themselves in these days. Both you and I, Maureen, have young adult daughters. And we watch them grapple, right, with the world and with all their their deep desires for family and children and also their very laudable desires to excel professionally and it's very complicated to mix these things it's great that Senator Blackburn addresses these issues which are so important because the other side the non-conservative side would say they present this this model of female success which doesn't really include a, being fully engaged at home and with more than one or two children and this is something that so many women especially those who've been raised in traditional and conservative households would like to meld together. 
It's right. The cultural message to young women today really, in many respects, presents a false choice uh, that you have to put off having children in order to have a successful career. One of the just very exciting things about Judge Barrett being elevated to the highest court in the land is that she is such a beautiful example of someone who integrated her role as a mother with making use of really the special gifts that she has because she's so clearly an exceptionally talented and gifted woman and she puts those gifts to such good use. So I think she's just an amazing role model. I'm so glad Senator Blackburn has written this book, which again, it's called The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Seeking the Best for Family and Country. You can find that on Amazon. So we we hope our listeners will check out that book. And you know, something that Senator Blackburn and Amy Coney Barrett have in common is that they both want to serve their countries and are serving their countries in very public, in ways that, that uh, of course, expose them to the sometimes very negative appreciation of of part of the culture. So I think that also is very brave of both of them. We do need women like that, that are conservative and and engaged in family and home, also being willing to brave the the outside culture and take the the negativity that comes with that. That's right. I I was able to be in the Rose Garden when President Trump nominated Judge Barrett. One of the adorable parts of her speech, there were so many of them, but one of the parts of her speech was when she just said, you know, I love the Constitution and I love the United States of America. You're right that clearly her sense of service, because this is a big sacrifice for her family. It's huge. Unbelievable sacrifice. So we really should be praying for the entire Barrett family and for the senators who are going to be considering her nomination. We should pray for members of the media that their hearts are touched. And, you know, it's been so interesting to watch this rollout. This was a flawless rollout of Mm -hmm. Judge. It's, I mean, it was amazing. And I think so many of us have been expecting all these horrible attacks, and some of them have come for sure. But there's also been in some quarters, a somewhat muted response. And I think people kind of don't quite know what to do with her. And I was alluding to this earlier in our interview with Senator Blackburn, I think some of these Democrats kind of feel checkmated, because she's so obviously eminently qualified. She's obviously also just a special person, an incredibly generous and loving person. So I think the Democrats are kind of casting about as to how to attack this nominee, because, you know, the Democrats in the Senate have kind of a tired old playbook frequently when it comes to judicial nominees. We saw it on very ugly display during the Kavanaugh nomination, but that, that's not going to work on Amy Barrett. So they're kind of moving on and testing out page two of their playbook, you know, attack her faith, which is what they did in her previous confirmation when they quizzed her in their condescending manner. Do you consider yourself an Orthodox Catholic? <laughs> you know, these absurd questions. Which well, course. let me ask you, Maureen, um, mm-hmm. because you, you watch all these things very closely and, and your sense of things is, is so true. Vice President Joe Biden has been making a lot of his Catholic faith. It's It's been in many of the ads. It's been a lot of the proxies that, that speak for him in the media are, are proclaiming his Catholic faith. Now we have someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who is going to be grilled for the very same Catholic faith. How can people live in that uh, 
a double standard? And, and how will they walk that double standard line? It's an incredible double standard. Joe Biden has said when somebody questions his Catholic faith because of his pro-abortion position, Joe Biden's response was to say, I'll shove my rosary beads down your throat. Oh, I missed that little gem, Marie. <laughs> Can you imagine wait, a conservative you know, saying such wait, a thing? I, I, don't think, I don't think Judge Barrett will be talking about shoving our rosary beads. Judge Barrett has quite <laughs> appropriately said that when she is a judge, she looks at the law and judges the law according to her legal prism. She's not judging the law based on her religious principles. So Judge Barrett has quite an appropriate view of how a judge ought to be a judge. But anyway, the double standard is, I mean, it's almost laughable if it weren't so offensive. You know, she wrote a piece, maybe a law review article in some sort of law publication many years ago where she talked about what it's like or what should it be like when a person is a judge and is also a fervent religious believer. I read through it a little bit. I'm not a lawyer, but I I came away with, with the understanding that she meant very clearly that the person had to judge according to the law that was in front of her, that that was her duty, and that she couldn't inject her own religious beliefs into her decisions. Uh, does that ring true to you of, of about Amy Coney Barrett? I think that's exactly what she has said and exactly what she would do. And everybody who knows her has testified to her integrity on that point. And I mean, we know even a liberal law professor at Harvard who clerked with her has said she does deserve a seat on the Supreme Court, that she's eminently qualified, that she knows the proper role of a judge. Progressives mm-hmm. on the court don't, they do use their belief systems in order to uh, judge cases, right? I mean, this is why we distinguish between constitutionalist or origin- originalist uh, judges and the other ones, because they do bring their own belief systems, whether they're religious or not, to bear on the case in front of them. Well, it's part of the irony here that liberal judges do tend to insert their own views and opinions on public policy into their judicial decisions, whereas conservatives tend to, I mean, it's their judicial philosophy to judge the the language of a law, to judge the constitutionality of the law based on the original meaning and the text. Mm-hmm. So um, so it, it is liberals who are guilty of inserting their own public policy views into their judicial decisions. So that, that is an irony of the situation for sure. Everything I've read about Judge Barrett and her religious her religious involvement to me as a daily church going a daily mass attending Catholic uh, seems very natural and very much part of a traditional Catholic daily uh, just approach to life where your faith is just woven into the fabric of each day and woven into the fabric of one's family and then woven also into the fabric of one's life of how we view our life and we we set things up for ourselves so that we can be faithful to God as we are also working through this mad world. Is that how you see Amy Barrett and and, and why is the pr- some so much of the press not being able to view that so naturally as we do? You know, I think so many members of the press and other people on the left are really ignorant when it comes to people of faith. They lack understanding. Sometimes the language of faith is almost like a foreign language to people who don't understand. I mean, just take, for example, the controversy over the use of this Catholic group's use of the word handmade. Now, anybody who's versed, you know, in basic biblical literacy knows that the term handmade is what Mary, the mother of Jesus, uses to refer 
referred to herself in the Gospel of Luke. When the angel of Gabriel appears to her, she says, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. So anybody familiar with the Bible knows that that's a you know simple biblical reference. But if you're not at all familiar with that, that sounds like one strange word to use, mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and then members on the left have kind of made this crazy connection with this dystopian novel written by Margaret Atwood called The Handmaid's Tale. Of course, the two have nothing to do with each other. And it, it's an absurd slur to say so. And some of the members of the media have had to issue corrections on that very point. But I think it's also important to recognize where some of this come from comes from that if you're outside of a faith tradition, it's easy to kind of look in and misunderstand. So just for example, when I was growing up, I grew up Catholic. One of my best friends was Jewish. I would spend time at her house. I went to seders and Passovers. So I could have looked at some of the practices in their family and said, gee, this is so strange. Why are we eating bitter herbs? Why are we sending the youngest child to the door to look for the prophet Elijah? <laughs> but rather I thought, wow, this is so interesting. There's so much meaning and significance behind these practices. So I think that's how we ought to, when looking through a window into another person's faith, we should have that attitude of seeking to understand the meaning and significance of a faith tradition rather than ridiculing it, kind of having a willful ignorance uh, about it. I'm remembering a Babylon Bee post. Um, Babylon Bee is a satire site and they're extremely funny. And it said, the new nominee, I'm going to butcher it because they're very funny the way they say things. They said, the new nominee is said to belong to a sect in which they eat the flesh and drink the blood of a strange Jewish man. <laughs> Right. So obviously, if you're looking from outside of faith tradition, it's very easy to misunderstand, (laughs) misunderstand different faith practices and traditions. So this is something that's going to be hard for the Democrats to go after. But maybe they're maybe the senators um, won't be so much the ones going after her, but it'll be more in the media. People who are are able to throw sort of throw stones (laughs) from further away, because I think someone like um, Judge Barrett is in in person must be extremely disarming. And um, she has such a gentle demeanor and and so polite and warm. I, I just really can't imagine people to her face making. Um, ugly allusions to to something that is so much uh, a part of of her intimate life, which is her faith. Well, I think that's why some of these Democratic senators are just flat out refusing to meet with her. That's right. I think I think they don't want to be face to face with this woman who, by all accounts, has an absolute heart of gold and is just a beautiful person. So, um, you know, on. On Twitter, of course, people are cast, you know, throwing all kinds of ugly things around, um, sort of in the Twitter universe. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where all of this goes. It, it's a very quick time frame here. The Republican senators led by Mitch McConnell seem to be very efficient in um, moving, you know, beginning to move through this process. Um, it's exciting to see Judge Barrett meeting with these different senators and getting ready for her hearings, which will begin just in the next few weeks. And um, just a reminder again to our listeners to please pray for her and her family and for all of those involved. And Maureen, I wanted to ask you, there there were something came up during the debate, uh, the first debate that was so entertaining. Something came up and um, I wanted to ask you what it meant, the 
uh, President, Vice President Biden mentioned that she, if she were not, if she were appointed to Supreme Court, she would be a danger to the um, the ACA, the Obamacare, as it is popularly known. What does he mean? Well, I was alluding to this earlier that I think the Democrats, they don't know how to handle this nomination because she's just so good. So they are casting about trying to, you know, try different pages of the playbook to see what's the best political hit on her that would be advantageous to them, the Democrats, personally, because we're so close to the election. So somehow they think, now we have no idea how Judge Barrett would rule on this upcoming case on Obamacare the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, but the Democrats know that the issue of health care polls well. So that's why they're hitting her preemptively mm. on a case she hasn't even ruled on. So it, on the one hand, it's kind of like a, a, a baseless attack, but on the other hand, they know that it could be a good political attack. So that's why they're focused on uh, talking about health care and the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions and all these things. It's quite a leap for them to jump to that, but that's where they're going. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up for me. Now, Maureen, um, we have to we have to end the segment, but I I wanted to point out that um, I have seen some ugly attacks on Twitter about her adoption of her two Haitian children, and the attacks seem to be based on a, a racialist idea that people should only adopt children within their own race which I take personally. <laughs> I have a Chinese child and I'm Hispanic. And um, as far as I can tell, that doesn't separate, the, the difference in our races doesn't separate our hearts in any way, mine and my daughter's. Um, when, um, what do you think? You're, I'm sure we're not going to see this in the, in the Senate hearings, but we'll definitely hear about it in the, in the media. Well, and as you said, we already are. This is, um, there's actually a really well-known person who conducts racial sensitivity seminars for various corporations around the country. And he put out the ugliest tweet on this. Um, I think you're right that I don't think the senators will raise this, but um, there's a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal on this topic written by uh, Jason Riley, if anybody wants to look that up. But um, but I'm, I'm glad that you raised this, Gracie, because our, our next guest is talking about just this uh, topic and has been raising it on the Senate floor because there is a bias in some areas areas of the uh, adoption space that um, raises questions like these. And sadly, it's causing more and more orphans to be left in orphanages rather than welcomed into a family. So it's a it, it's one of those tragic kind of ideologies that just has really sad consequences for real people and children in particular. Well, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. Stay tuned. Coming up next, we'll have Senator Wicker, and we'll be talking to him about his efforts to uh, streamline international adoption and make beautiful families like Judge Amy Coney Barrett's family more common. If 
you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm joined today with my, by my colleague Maureen Ferguson and Senator Roger Wicker, who serves the great state of Mississippi. A couple weeks ago, he gave an impassioned speech to on the Senate floor about international adoption, something that's uh, very important to me and to all of us here at Conversations with Consequences. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Senator Wicker. Glad to be with you. Thanks so much. Senator, this is Maureen Ferguson here, and we're so thrilled to have you on with us. And we're dying to get your opinion on the nominee, President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. We have a few questions about that. But first, the real reason we've invited you on today, and we're, again, so grateful you've joined us, is I was so delighted to be chatting with you and your wife, Gail, at a recent dinner, and you were telling me about this speech that you had given on the Senate floor on the issue of international adoption. And this is an issue that's close to all of our hearts. So I went immediately home to watch this speech, and it was so incredibly moving. We wanted to invite you to come right on to tell us about your concerns on this issue and the speech that you gave on the Senate floor. Well, Maureen, you're, you're kind to uh, be complimentary about my speech, and uh, I, I'm hoping that a lot more members will hear this message and step forward and uh, be outspoken about this. America has always been welcoming to orphans from other countries, children who um, were totally separated from parents, uh, uh, children who uh, had no prospect other than to live for years and years in an orphanage. And uh, more than 150,000 children are now living in forever families, uh, growing up as Americans. But the number of international adoptions in our country has plummeted in recent years. In 2004, Americans adopted 23,000 children from foreign countries. That figure has fallen to 3,000 just last year. So from 23,000 a year to only 3,000, an 87% drop. The primary reason for this, regrettably, sadly, unbelievably, is the hostility of our own federal state department to international adoptions. So uh, we've been wrestling with this with some adoption agencies in my own state of Mississippi who've just been tearing their hair out about this. There are children who need families. There are families in America who want children, and yet we have encountered um, stumbling block after stumbling block from our own federal government, particularly the State Department. Senator, when uh, Maureen got back from, from this dinner that she was at with you, this is Gracie Christie, she told me about you and your speech, and I also listened to it, and, and I, I said to her right away, let's have him on because I have a great interest in, in adoption. I have a little girl from China that I brought home in 2007 when she was almost a year old, and so for me, for our family, international or intercountry adoption is it's beyond a blessing in our lives. It's, it's something that has given us so much joy, and we're also very conscious of the fact that back in China, where she's from, the orphanages continue to be full of children, mostly little girls, who really have no prospect of ever finding a home because in China, there's no national adoption pro- program. People in China don't adopt children. That's that's not even a possibility for them. That's something that maybe as some Americans don't know. Right. Well, you know, we have children in our church. We go to First Baptist Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. We, we 
have children from all over the world who've been adopted and, and are now part of a loving home. Gail and I have two little uh, Ethiopian American cousins that, that Gail's cousin adopted. Uh, in years past, when when this wasn't um, being opposed by by our own State Department so much, but but in recent years this has slowed down. There's an accrediting agency within the State Department, and they have literally obstructed the adoption process with new fees, red tape, unrealistic standards on foreign governments. If someone is an orphan in an Asian, kind of highly populated Asian country, uh, it's almost impossible to prove conclusively beyond a, a shadow of, of a doubt that the parents are deceased. Many times they're just they're just gone hundreds and hundreds of miles away. There's no prospect for the child. A federal judge recently chided the State Department as using unconvincing and illogical reasoning and being so hard on this. But I'm just hoping that some of your listeners will speak to their representatives in the House and Senate. Actually, I would like to to move this accrediting function from the State Department to another agency that deals with children's services and understands the importance of providing American family, welcoming families with an opportunity to help children of their own and to um, step in to this area where there's so much of a need. Well, Senator, we will most certainly encourage our listeners to be in touch with their member of Congress and their senators about this. And your story about your Ethiopian-American cousins was very touching to me. And in my family, my husband and I know exactly, or we have felt personally the effects of this process because we many years ago started the process of adopting from Ethiopia. And just as we finished the process, it was just when Ethiopia was starting to shut down their, their and our process took a long time because I had a surprise pregnancy in the middle of it. So it took a few years, <laughs> but, and they kick you off the list as soon as you're pregnant. But uh, so we had to wait even longer. But by the time we were getting back into it, Ethiopia sadly had shut down and there were no fewer orphans in Ethiopia, but they were allowing fewer international adoptions. So, and, but you mentioned it's not just the problem on the other end, because we know, of course, Russia shut things down. China has been difficult and shut things down, but you're talking about what's going on in our very own State Department. So that's what we need to kind of educate people about to communicate. So what would you urge people to say if they can call up their member of Congress or senators? Ask them to contact the Office of Children's Issues in the State Department and ask them why we've gone from uh, 23,000 adoptions in 2004 to below 3,000 now and ask them to become uh, more reasonable. The position on both sides of the ocean now has become that it is better for children without a family to remain institutionalized in crowded and crowded orphanages rather than come to America and have a forever family. And that's just intolerable. I don't intend to, to let this issue lapse. I hope we can continue to raise the visibility. And I can tell you that, that uh, after I spoke recently about this on the Senate floor, a Democratic member came up to me and, and uh, said he would like to help on this issue too. So we just need to uh, begin talking about it and educating the public. And I think when the American people find out what's happening, they'll they'll be eager to, uh, to to go back to a more welcoming America. Senator, can you do you think you could put your you, you can pinpoint you can put your finger on where the bias 
bias originates? What exactly is going wrong in these career diplomats' ideas about intercountry adoption that prevents them from seeing the full beauty of this process? It's it's hard for me to imagine, and so I, I'm, I think I'll decline to characterize it. it there, there may there may be something mixed up in the pro-choice movement. I just don't know. But but I'm further than that. I'm just going to decline to characterize and say that that no matter where you are on that very important and volatile issue, who could be against giving an orphan in another country the opportunity to come and have a, a loving family? They want some. Who could be against that? So let's keep up the issue. And y'all are a wonderful to give me a public platform to speak about this. Well, we're so grateful to you for raising it. And I suppose it's even more important now in the pandemic because I've heard that adoptions have been particularly hard hit, that there are children stranded in other countries that can't be adopted. And I've heard that in China in particular, that there are 80 children in Wuhan waiting for their forever family. So even the few children who have been made eligible for adoption, I've heard that they're kind of trapped amidst the limbo of the pandemic. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But you are uh, a ray of sunshine. And thank you for um, being willing to be part of this effort. I have seen the difference in the process when I went through the international adoption process. The paperwork was, uh, there was a lot of paperwork. It was expensive. And now my fast forward or 10 years or 11 years, my sister-in-law who went with me to pick up our little girl from China is starting the process herself with her husband. And her paperwork burden, I would have to say it has at least quadrupled. And the cost... There you go. There you are. Mm-hmm. So that that, uh, that verifies what I've been told. And it's uh, not just the extent of the paperwork, but the expense. Because every single thing that she does ha- comes with a fee attached to it, as I found out when I did it. And I have to say, my experience in international adoption, people who adopt are not not people generally who are well off. There are people who are full of love, you know, very often religious people who lead simple lives and and really want to open their homes, not because they have an excess of things, but because they have an excess of love of neighbor. Well, in, in our community also, uh, friends and family get together and provide cash donations. That's true. To, def- to defray this expense because it is expensive. Senator Wicker, if you don't mind, we would love to pivot uh, and pick your brain a little bit about the very exciting nomination to the nation's highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. It's quite exciting. We know that probably a real battle is brewing over the Supreme Court nomination. We know in the past the process has gotten very ugly and there have been some pretty low blows, a lot of religious liberty or, or religious bias coming out against nominees. So we're wondering if you can just share a few thoughts on the the hearing, upcoming hearings, and what's the buzz on Capitol Hill about all of this? I've been in the Senate now for um, about 13 years. I've run for the office three times, and on every occasion, I've made it clear that, that one of my principal goals was to assist a conservative Republican president in putting qualified constitutionalist conservative justices on the Supreme Court. So uh, this news is um, is excellent news, encouraging news. Of course, we'll, we'll go through the process and have the hearings and meet with the candidates, but I uh, expect to be put down early on as a yes, and um, I, I welcome this opportunity for, to fulfill what I 
presidency is my constitutional duty and, and what I'm sure the president felt was his constitutional duty to fill the vacancy that occurs. We don't get to choose when that vacancy occurs, but under the Constitution, the president had that choice. I think he's chosen wisely and uh, I'm encouraged and uh, very positive about it. You mentioned we, we don't choose the timing of this and we'll just mention we pray for the repose of the soul of Justice Ginsburg, of course. I was so pleased to be able to make a visit to pay respects up at the Capitol where she was lying in state. But pivoting back to this nomination, it's just incredibly important for people of faith in particular. And a a lot of people are wondering about the process. And do you think that the Senate will be able to get this nomination to the floor for a vote before Election Day? Is that a realistic prospect? I I, I do. I, I expect she'll be confirmed before the general election, probably in the last week of October. But let's also do this. Let's be mindful that there are some very ugly threats out there to members of the Senate. I was at uh, at an airport with a particular senator. I will not name the name, but this senator now has full-time police protection because of threats made. And one, one senator has had to move from his residence in Washington to another place because of threats. So there, there's a lot of ugliness out there, and um, and I, I think every member of that judiciary committee would appreciate being the subject of prayer during this time because uh, it's a different day and age than I ever experienced in uh, in my younger days during the Supreme Court nomination. So particularly the ones on the committee are undergoing some very, very vicious treatment. And I regret that, but we need to be mindful of it. And so I'm telling our listeners, these people need our prayers. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Senator. And you certainly have ours. And, and our, I'm sure that our listeners um, will also pray for these men and women that are that are really under a terrible public scrutiny and as you say in, in danger it seems that America is becoming a very fractured place it's very sad to see for all of us whether we are making making things happen like you are in DC or just watching and, and praying Senator you know one of the things that has been so difficult for people of faith is the way that the um, recently nominees to any any kind of position but especially judicial positions are being held to a very strange scrutiny about their faith, usually their Christian faith. And um, this is this is very disturbing, and, and it's something that we've seen getting worse and worse. Back in 2017, you supported Amy Coney Barrett when she was nominated for a federal bench, for the federal bench, and you pointed out, you said, if you don't mind me quoting you, the tactics that Senate Democrats have deployed to delay her nomination prove the lanes they will go to distort the rules and abuse the process. They have even gone so far as to imply that her Catholic faith could be a liability. It's, it's amazing. And what what happened to, to Justice Kavanaugh was just beyond the pale. It, mm. it really makes a family man who's got a successful career elsewhere think twice before subjecting himself to that type of, uh, of character assassination and, and completely unmerited uh, character assassination. So, but um, I'm glad that people are still willing to step forward and stand in the gap. And, and, and I would just, I would just hope that these organized efforts, they're not spontaneous. They're organized by uh, some of the wealthiest people in the world to move our country to the left. I, I, I would hope that we, that the majority of Americans would recognize these for what they are and reject them. 
That's right. Well, again, we are most certainly keeping the nominee in our prayers. We'll certainly keep all the senators in our prayers. And, you know, Senator Wicker, we Catholics, we we do the St. Michael prayer to bind the evil one. (laughs) Um, That's a Catholic thing. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Um, So I'm already on several novena lists for the St. Michael prayer for this nomination. So thank you for your call to prayer there. Well, I'll tell you, a, a Baptist would uh, appreciate that very much so I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> Senator while we have you and you know, as you know many Americans are still grappling with the repercussions of the pandemic and the terrible lockdowns which have uh, destroyed so many dreams and hopes for so many Americans you've worked very steadfastly to help job growth and opportunities for Americans oh. what do you what do you see going forward for for all of us who are struggling we're not out of the woods yet but I'll tell you this the Congressional Budget Office predicted that at, by the end of September, the unemployment rate would be 15%, in the neighborhood of 15%. As we know, it's now about 8.5%. Really a phenomenal standing based on the way we have voluntarily chosen to shut down our economy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that's a testament to the things we had done beforehand, the, the major tax cuts where 95% of Americans got a tax cut, where we made ourselves more competitive globally and our economy of course, in February, before all this came over from the Wuhan province of China, our, our economy was, I mean, our unemployment rate was an unbelievable three and a half percent. Something I was told in economics 101 could never happen, could never go below four percent unemployment. But we were we were that much better. And I think the the residual effect of that has made our economy more likely to bounce back. I, I think we do need a phase four. And uh, my recent column that I put out every week mentioned several things we need to do. I'm worried about the airline industry. I'm worried about the majority of our restaurants shutting down and shutting down for good. So I don't want to sugarcoat things. And I'm sorry that negotiations uh, with the Speaker have, have turned out to be impossible. Hmm. But but even, even now, as we're about to see thousands and thousands of layoffs in the airline industry and communities losing air service, I'm hoping even now, in the next few days, we can resume negotiations and, and uh, everybody's not going to get what they want and we can't spend every penny that the speaker would like to. But still, the president is willing to sign a very generous package and I really think I think we're still going to need it just like we did in March. But thank you for giving giving me a chance to, to uh, end on that note. I do sure. appreciate it. And, and you know, I, I, I think that we can add that to our prayer list that things get better for all Americans. You could add us us to our prayer list every day. (laughs) Well, thank you, Senator Wicker. It's been a delight to have you. And thank you especially for your work on international adoption. And we really hope that you succeed and that other senators and congressmen join you in making that a reality. Help us call attention to it. Thank you so much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when he'll give us another parable about a vineyard, this time one that has been leased out to tenants who rather than paying their rent, 
beat and kill the servant sent to collect it, even murder the owner's son when he comes to speak to them about it. What Jesus says has both an important historical meaning as well as a crucial actual meaning. For us to understand its present significance, though, we first need to grasp the historical lessons Jesus was teaching his original listeners. With the image of the vineyard, Jesus was summarizing God's relations with the Jewish people. As God himself said through the prophet Isaiah, which will be this Sunday's first reading, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. The vineyard is ultimately all of God's people, all of creation he has created. All of us are meant to work and cultivate that vineyard. But God gave the house of Israel more than just the stewardship over the great natural endowment of creation. He also made them stewards of a greater gift, the covenant he established with the human race. Through Isaiah, we see how much personal care God takes in preparing the vineyard of Israel. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted with choice vines, built a watchtower in its midst, and hewed out a wine vat in it. God, in other words, had done all the hard work building the infrastructure of the vineyard, clearing it so that it can bear fruit, putting a watchtower in it to guard for animals coming to eat the fruit, establishing a wine press in it so that the fruit can immediately produce wine and joy. He gave the house of Israel the relatively light task of maintaining that vineyard and bearing fruit from that covenant. What happened? God tells us through Isaiah that he expected it to yield grapes, but he yield wild grapes. It had the appearance of growth, the outward show of fruit, but the fruit was worth nothing. Fruit is always to be interpreted as acts of love, justice, goodness, and faith. This is not what God found. He found, rather, bloodshed. So the owner of the vineyard, God the Father, as Jesus tells us in the parable, sent his servants, the prophets, to remind them of the need to produce good fruit from all of God's gifts and to teach them by word and example how to do so. But the reaction was to beat and kill the messengers. So God the Father sent others more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. This precisely happened to God's prophets. Almost all of them were executed. Jesus, in fact, would later lament over the holy city, saying that it was the site of the martyrdom of so many prophets. Jesus tells us that after all of those unjust deaths, his father Landover sent his son to them, saying, they respect my son. But rather than respond with gratitude for yet one more chance, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When Jesus said those words, he was telling them precisely what was occurring in their hearts at that moment and prophesying what would happen within two weeks. That sentiment, come let us kill him, reverberated through Pontius Pilate's courtyard as they screeched, let him be crucified. What was essentially going on within their hearts was that they didn't want to be stewards of God's vineyard, but owners. They didn't want to have a God over them. They wanted to be gods themselves, like power-hungry princes who kill all other claimants to their throne. They killed anyone who tried to teach them otherwise. The great English writer C.S. Lewis once said that the devil's always trying to get us to think we're owners. He wants us to say, like a whining child on its most selfish days, mine. It's my life. It's my work. It's my money. It's my family. It's my future. It's my Sunday. Mine, mine, mine. The first Sunday of October is Respect Life Sunday. When we pray and recommit ourselves to living and proclaiming the gospel of life, we can see how the devil has insinuated the lie C.S. Lewis describes in the hearts of so many who justify abortion and euthanasia. Pro-abortion leaders and politicians, for example, trumpet that a diabolical idea, it's my body, it's my choice. But their child's body is not their body. Not even our body is our body. We're stewards, not owners. Once the devil, however, has gotten someone to start thinking he or she is an owner and not a steward, 
disastrous consequences follow, something we've seen happen 60 million times in our country alone since Roe versus Wade. We see the same diabolical seduction at work among those who are pushing for euthanasia or sweetly entitled physician-assisted suicide. People say, it's my life, I'll determine when it ends. But it's not their life. Once again, we're stewards, not owners. It's no surprise that once people to start, to start to think that we, rather than God, are the Lord of the living and the dead, that other atrocities ensue, ensue, like involuntary euthanasia, which is nothing short of murder. In the Netherlands, where they've practiced euthanasia now for a quarter of a century, doctors have started to determine when life is worth living, have been taking upon themselves the decision whether to try to help the patient get better, which is their duty, or to try to put the patient to sleep as if the patient were a dog. Many senior citizens who are sick don't want to go to the hospital anymore because they fear that their doctors will kill them without their permission. Jesus tells his Jewish listeners at the end of today's parable that the vineyard, God's kingdom, will be taken away and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. That's what Jesus did in founding the church and inviting the Jews to enter. He passed along the stewardship of creation, especially God's covenant with the human race, to the church he established. But like with the Jews, God's calling us to bear fruit in acts of self-giving love, justice, generosity, and faith. He wants us to bear the fruit of the kingdom. God wants us to ask ourselves what type of fruit we've been bearing from the gift of our life, true fruit or wild grapes. Have we been making a difference, for example, in advancing a culture of life? Have we saved a life yet by helping a pregnant woman choose life or by compassionately caring for an elderly loved one so that he or she may not be tempted toward suicide? God wants to help us bear true fruit. It's no surprise that Jesus, in summarizing all of salvation history, did so in the form of the image of a vineyard. He knew from all eternity that he would one day take from the fruit of the vine and turn it into his own blood, which is the price of our salvation. In the raw material for the Eucharist, Jesus showed how we wanted to involve our efforts. He used not grain and grapes, but bread and wine, which not only are the fruit of the earth and of the vine, but the work of human hands. It's here that we bring our patient hard work and where God prunes. It's the vin that vineyard, which is the world, the f with the Father as the vine grower, Jesus the vine, and us as the branches. If we remain in him and he in us, then we will bear fruit and acts of love that will last forever. So we prepare to receive him on Sunday. We thank the Father for sending us his Son, confident that we will not only respect him, but love and embrace him in the blessed fruit of every womb, and with him produce a harvest of life that will know no end. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 